um, coming for afternoon Sunday school. As long as we're doing it, it'll probably be 30 years when we're meeting in the afternoon. It's still going to be uh, strange to not be saying good morning for, uh, for Sunday school for sure. But uh, I tend to cover today on the, the return of our Lord Jesus. Certainly, we can't wait. That's what we know for sure is that it has never been this close, and it is a great day a coming. But um, the details are um, harder to discern, and we're looking today at, uh, at those um, with, with a number of good points, probably two hours of good points that we're going to try to uh, squeeze into 42 minutes. So let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll uh, turn it over to Mark and Greg to help us with, uh, with this. Father, we are grateful for your countless blessings, including uh, the soon return of our Lord Jesus. We are grateful, so grateful. Um, that you are in heaven and you do as you please, and it has pleased you to reveal to us that uh, someday there will be the end of this uh, sin and <coughs> sorrow and sadness, and we will experience um, eternal bliss um, with you um, where, where there will be no more sin, no more sadness, no more pain, uh, no more tears, but just a continual um, glorifying you as, uh, as should be happening now. It doesn't always happen now. And so, Lord, we are grateful. We pray that today uh, we would um, be able to, with humility, um, look at these uh, somewhat controversial um, topics of, of the details of, of your return. Um, but, Lord, you would give us discernment and grace. Um, Lord, we are so grateful uh, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. And we pray that we would remember the gospel um, even as we tackle these theological issues in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Mark, why don't you start us? Okay. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24. I, I will say that personally, like trying to study eschatology, which is the fancy word for the last things or the end times, it, it is a humbling thing, is it not, to study oh, because Absolutely. you're dealing with, I think, some of the hardest passages to interpret in the Bible. They, they, they're passages that run throughout books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, then you have New Testament. The, the chapter, Matthew 24, is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives when He gave this discourse across from the temple. This is on the week of His death. And he's predicting for sure the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which is going to happen about 40 years from when he says this. But he's also, I think, uh, predicting some events preceding his second coming and his actual second coming to earth. And it's described in Matthew 24. It's described in Mark 13. And I believe it's also in Luke 21 around that, that spot. And it's one of the hardest sections of teachings of Jesus. I think it is the hardest teaching of Jesus to interpret in the Bible. And then you go to the New Testament, later in the New Testament, after Jesus, some of Paul's most difficult chapters in the Bible, I think, are about the return of Christ, like 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness and the rebellion and this and that. It's very difficult to know precisely what is being described. Um, let, me just, let me just say something else here at the beginning of this conversation is, you've probably heard, or some of you have heard the phrase, uh, prophetic telescoping. 
Now, that that's, again, sounds fancy. It's not fancy at all. If you've ever been, you know, to see a mountain range and you look through your binoculars or maybe you even have like a telescope and you're looking at a mountain range from far off, if you look at it with your binoculars, two mountains could look like they are nearly touching uh, from your perspective as you see it two-dimensionally through your, well, I guess three-dimensionally through your binoculars, but it looks almost two-dimensional. You see these two things right up against each other. And if you were to travel all day to get to the mountain peak, that first mountain peak you get to, you, you might discover that there's another 30 miles before the next mountain peak. So when you were sitting back looking through your goggles, these things looked like they were sitting on top of each other. When you get to the first mountain peak, there's actually a massive gap between the two. And so with, with prophecies in both Old and New Testament, this is happening, I think, regularly. So that Daniel is describing events that are going to happen in a couple hundred years from where he is. He's also describing events with Jesus a couple hundred years after that. He's also, I think, describing end times events right before the return of Christ. Three mountain peaks right up next to each other. And it's sometimes hard to know which mountain peak is which. When are we talking about this guy in the, in the 160s BC named King Antiochus, who I think is there? When are we talking about Jesus himself and his being crucified, which I think is there? And when are we talking about the Antichrist, who I think is also in Daniel? And, and those, those, there, there's a lot of connections between these three. Sometimes there's patterns. Uh, we call this typology, where one foreshadows the next and the next one foreshadows the next one. So there might be similarities between them, but it's not always crystal clear when the immediately preceding event, like when the next event is being referred to, when the one after that, and when the one after that's being talked about. And every time, personally, I feel like, and I'm borrowing this illustration from someone else, but every time I feel like I've got the puzzle pieces put together for my view, I always look over and there's about five puzzle pieces left over. Texts that don't really fit perfectly in my grid. And so then I, I rework it again with these other pieces and try to make them fit. And then some other pieces seem to pop out on the other side. So I, I never feel, at least at this point in my life, I don't feel like I have a settled grasp on all these passages and how they all fit together. So we're going to do the best we can. Some of these things are more difficult than others. But we're going to be, again, discussing uh, the rapture itself. And we won't give the caveats we gave two weeks ago. If you were here, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that. We gave a lot of caveats and foundations for that. Today, we're going to really just dive in and go pretty quickly through a number of points. Right now, what I have written down is 13 reasons to doubt the pre-tribulation rapture. So we may not get to all 13. I, I don't know what's going to happen in, as we go, but 13 reasons to, to doubt uh, the pre-tribulation rapture. And again, all the caveats uh, I don't want to repeat from, from two weeks ago. Greg, any other introductory thoughts as we jump into this? Um, I like what you said about you know, some of this, it's, it's how do we piece things together? And I think we just all need to strive to be honest to say, no matter what position we come down on pre-trib, post-trib, there's always going to be texts that we're going to struggle with. No one has it super nice and perfectly clean and crisp with no issues. Like, and, and I think we just need to acknowledge that. Like this is, this is it's dealing with the future things that haven't happened yet. Uh, so we need to be humble in terms of how we deal with these things um, and be honest and say, you know what, this is my best attempt at putting everything together. Uh, and constantly, like you said, you go back, you realize, well, this text might shine light here and this, that, and the other. And so we just want to be, be honest and say, this is, we think and are very confident that the position we're presenting to you makes the best sense of the evidence. Okay. But we always want to be evaluating in light of scripture and that's Okay. All right, like there is certainty on the fact that Jesus is coming back physically, bodily, visibly to, you know, destroy his enemies and rescue his people, establish his kingdom. There's no doubt or debate on that. There's no doubt or debate on the crucifixion of Christ, on the resurrection of Christ, on the ascension of Christ. You know, there's so many key things that scripture is abundantly clear on. Uh, and we have unity in that and we don't doubt that. But an issue like this dealing with the future and the specific details Things can get a little murky at times, and it's not because Scripture is unclear. It's because we're limited. 
because we're fallen. And one day I think we're all going to be in heaven. We're going to look back on this and we're probably going to laugh. Be like, ha, you know, you see how bad you got that there? And oh yeah, look at what I got wrong there. And um, thinking about the details of the end times, like we're probably going to have a good laugh about it and then move on and keep worshiping and serving the Lord. Uh, so let's just keep that in mind as we go through this, okay? Uh, we're approaching this, trying to fit a lot of stuff together. And, you know, we just need to be humble about it. And again, just, just to remind you, the discussion, if I'm using the table, is like moving forward in time. The question is, will there be in the future a, what is often called the secret rapture of Christ, where Christ returns invisibly, not seen by unbelievers, but by believers? Both dead believers are resurrected and living believers are transformed in a moment. We are caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. First Thessalonians 4, that caught up is where we get the word rapture. We're not denying that that is absolutely right and biblical. We're caught up in the Lord. Does that happen here? And then there's a seven-year period of tribulation where the seals, trumpets, and bowls of Revelation 6 to 16 are poured out on the world when the church is gone. There's a conversion of 144,000 ethnic Jews would be the view. They evangelize the world and save many people out of the world during the tribulation. Then um, at the end of those seven years, Jesus comes back visibly, publicly, and judges the world in righteousness. Is that what the Bible teaches? Now, again, that is what most, at least we're Southern Baptists, most Southern Baptists have for the last hundred years have taken that view for granted. Like, if you don't believe that view, it's like, wait, how could you? That's what the Bible says. Like, what are you talking about? Many of the major uh, well-known TV preachers and even otherwise solid evangelists of the last century have, been, have taken this view. So, um, <clears throat> the other view is that the descriptions in the Bible of the rapture, which are three texts that we'll talk about, those three texts describing the rapture, are those describing the same event, which is Christ's public appearance in judgment? That is the view that, that I, again, I want to be humble about this, but at this point, having studied it even more uh, in recent days, I am extremely personally persuaded that there's only one return of Christ coming in the future, that it happens at the end of a time of tribulation, and that both the rapture text and the judgment text are describing one singular event. Now, could I be wrong on that? I mean, that question, I could apply that to a lot of my doctrine, but I, I want to say, I think the arguments weight much more strongly, from what I can tell, in favor of one final return of Christ, not two returns, or what, what is often said is one return in two stages, is how it's often said. But if Jesus comes from heaven to earth once, and then leaves, and then comes back seven years later, how is that one return in two stages? That sounds like two returns. That's why I'm calling it two returns. I think it is two returns, functionally speaking. So, is there going to be two returns or one future return of Christ? Could, before uh, you give us these reasons, could you help us from your perspective, from, from this perspective then, what's the tribulation? Could you help us with that? Just because I think that question could come up. Yeah. We know what the tribulation is from the pre-trib. Yes. How, how do you see the tribulation? So, just, I'm going to throw some Greek words out just because these are the words that are always debated. The word thalipsis is the word for uh, tribulation. It's used, I don't know, 40-something times in the New Testament. Paul uses it dozens of times. Uh, everybody in, in this situation is largely agreed that when Paul's using the word, he's normally referring to the suffering Christians endure in this age. In other words, I, I believe this is, again, this is controversial. I have to defend this biblically. I believe the tribulation is real. I believe it lasts. Are you ready for this? I believe it lasts not for seven years. I believe it starts upon Christ's crucifixion. I believe that's the beginning of the tribulation. And I believe that his, the tribulation goes until the return of Christ, the final return. So I believe it's the entire period between the resurrection, ascension of Christ, and his final return. That's the time of tribulation. Basing 
that in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the tribulation that goes on until his return. So I believe it's an entire, now it's been almost 2,000 years of tribulation. But I do believe, based on uh, text in, for instance, Revelation, uh, text in um, several places that I could, we, could, we could get to, I think we will get to some of these, where I do believe there's an intensification of tribulation that comes with the time of the Antichrist right before the return of Christ. So the entire period in between is, is marked by earthquakes that Jesus mentions, famines, wars, rumors of wars. Those are always going on. They're not a necessary indication that Jesus is about to come back, despite what many prophecy books will tell you, right? You know, there, there's an earthquake, there's a blood moon, there's this and that. Therefore, Jesus is coming back in the next few years. That's not what Jesus actually says. The, the end is not yet when these signs begin. These are labor pains, and the labor pains may indicate, labor pains indicate a child is coming, but it doesn't indicate exactly when the child is going to be born. Some women have long and some women have short labors, and uh, what, I have no business talking about that, so we'll, we'll keep moving. But um, the, the labor pains last between the, the first and second coming of Christ. There will always be wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, all that stuff will be happening. That's tribulation. The church is always being in some way persecuted. If they, if they, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they call the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Paul says, through many tribulations, the lips says, we must enter the kingdom of heaven, on and on and on. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are in the tribulation. There's no question about it. Go ask Christians in Afghanistan or in North Korea if we're in the tribulation. They will tell you, yeah, my aunt was murdered. My husband was murdered. My son was murdered. We're in the tribulation. We're, we're at the time where the world hates us. But I do believe when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness appears, I believe that will happen before Christ's return. When that happens, the intensification will be increased. I base this on passages like Daniel 7 and other places where the man of lawlessness, this, this Antichrist figure, goes uh, with, the, with the empowering, really, of Satan and, and begins to massively persecute Christians, perhaps on a much wider scale, I think on a much wider scale than we have seen before in church history. So persecution is always happening, but I think the intensification gets turned up and then Jesus will return. Second Thessalonians 1, 2 says he will return. He will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So I believe Jesus is going to, everyone agrees on this, he's going to kill the man of lawlessness at his final return. And so I, I believe we're in the tribulation now, but it's going to get turned up right before the return of Christ. That's helpful. Good. Thanks. Matthew 24. Now, this is, this is probably the least important of the 13 or so points today, but I, I just want to mention it because it's what the, 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 the book Left Behind is based on. Okay, so maybe it's a cheap shot, but I, I just want to take a quick shot at the title Left Behind. If you look at Matthew 24, uh, look down at verse uh, 36 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. We could talk about what that means another time, but verse 37 for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. That's left behind right there. Uh, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know at what hour the Lord is coming. Now, just real quick, if you look here... Jesus compares his return to what Old Testament event? Noah's flood. And Jesus says here, when the flood came, Noah and his family entered the ark, and those who were judged were what? They were swept away. So those who are taken away in Noah's flood are those who experience God's judgment. Those who are left in the boat are those who are saved. Hmm. Left behind are the people who are saved. Then Jesus says, when I return, it's going to be the same way. One will be taken, that is taken away to judgment, like, like the flood, taken away, swept away in judgment. The other one will be left, left behind to meet Christ in the air, left behind to be saved. So I actually think the phrase left behind is exactly backwards. We should be left behind. 
You don't want to be swept away with the flood of Noah. You don't want to be swept away when Jesus returns. You want to be left behind. You don't want to be swept in. So just a little tiny, that's probably the least important point so I could even make here. But I do think left behind is what you want to be, not what you don't want to be. Not much. You got it. Okay. <laughs> point number two. Uh, the, uh, this Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, it never mentions in any of them that Christians will be taken away before the tribulation. This is actually a hard thing to make sense out of if you take the other view. It never once says that. Everything in these texts is always about preparing us to make it through the great tribulation that then leads to the return of Christ. Why? Oh, just, just to give you uh, an example of what I mean there, uh, look at um, verse 21. And I do think this is still Matthew 24. I, I, this is probably certainly in some way referring to 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, but I think it also applies to the tribulation in general. I think that was one part of the tribulation. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until now, no one never will be. And in those days, had, uh, had they not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I, told you, see, I have told you beforehand. So that they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpses, there the vultures gather, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So now we are post-tribulational. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then he goes on to say, we don't know the day or the hour. There's no indication here that the church is gone. Every indication is you guys get ready because this is what's coming. False Christs are coming. False messiahs are coming. Earthquakes, famines, all these things. Pre be prepared not to be led astray during these times. And after the tribulation of those days, I'm going to come back and get my elect. I'm going to come back and rescue my people. I'm going to come back and call you to myself. There's no indication the church is gone when the tribulation is happening. It's every indication that we are to live through that time. And then we will be rescued at the end after the tribulation in those days. I want to bring something out from Matthew 24 and make a connection to Matthew 28. Uh, because one of the things that is often argued from a pre-trib perspective is that like in Matthew 24, uh, when you read the signs of the end of the age, verses like 3 through 14, that's referring to, um, or it's getting into verse 9 through 13, it's referring to what happens after the church is raptured out. This is something that's going to be taking place uh, during the tribulation. Look specifically at verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so it's often said, well, that's what's going to happen in that final seven-year period. Period, that final seven-year generation, the Jews, you know, will be back and there will be Jewish evangelists and stuff like that. But let's let Jesus interpret himself here, okay? And what I mean is, look at Matthew chapter 28, okay? So keep in mind, gospel of the kingdom to all nations, okay? Look at Matthew 28. This is the very famous Great Commission text. And again, this is why it matters that we read all of what Jesus says, not just the go therefore. Look at verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's language of reigning. That's language of a king who's been given his authority. Okay? So the, the gospel, the great commission is given by one who has all authority by the king. So it's a kingly commission and a kingly gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom because it's the gospel of the king. 
Okay, and where does, what does Jesus say to do to the church? He says what? Go and make disciples of all nations. What did he say is going to happen in Matthew 24? This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. The church, the church's commission is how Matthew 24, 14 is fulfilled. How does the gospel get to all nations? Why does it do that? It's because Jesus commissioned his church to do that. And also keep in mind, we, we looked at this in Acts chapter one, verse eight. You know, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Keep in mind, the gospel started in Jerusalem. We are the uttermost parts of the earth over here in the United States. Okay, we are the uttermost parts of the earth. It's not from our location that it's uttermost. It's from there and we're the other side of the world. Okay, and, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to be like overly antagonistic with that, but let scripture interpret scripture here. It seems very clear that when Jesus says, all authority is mine, go make disciples of all nations, that's the gospel. That's the gospel we preach. That's the gospel by which disciples are made. And we go where? To all nations to do that. There's not a future worldwide evangelization effort that's going to take place. It has been taking place for the last 2,000 years. Why? Because this gospel of the kingdom to all nations is what the church has been doing every time it preaches the gospel. Oh, that's good. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, the, the three texts that I think both sides are agreed. There's three texts that explicitly talk about the rapture in the Bible. Uh, that would be John 14, 1 through 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 54. Those are the three, those are the three uh, really highly debated texts. And uh, let me just reread uh, this text here so we can all have it in our heads. Uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, ver chapter 4, verse 13 comforting those who've had believing friends who've died. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For, we, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God." and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, keep going here. Uh, the, other, the, the view that we're arguing against would say that the next verses describe the return after the seven years. What we just read is before the seven years. That would be the argument. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need uh, to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Just, just stopping there. Um, it's interesting, verse 4, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Seems very strange that he would say that since no Christians will be there for that to happen. Uh, the, he should just say that they, will not, that they will not overtake you at all because you'll be gone seven years before that day of verse four. But he says it won't surprise you like a thief. In other words, you will have some sense that you're getting close to that day right before the day happens and you'll still be in the world when it happens. It's not gonna catch you off guard. You won't, you won't be caught like a thief. But it seems strange if he's addressing the church to say here, it won't surprise you like a thief when they won't be there at all. It seems very clear to me that they will be there and that they will not be surprised by it like a thief. But here's, here's the point. I wanted to point out, I mentioned this two weeks ago, I want to read through this really quickly. 
G.K. Beale's commentary on 1 Thessalonians. This, get this, the, the parallels between Matthew 24 that Greg and I were just looking at and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, these two paragraphs, are incredible. He gives 13 parallels between the two passages. Now, here's why this matters. Matthew 24, Jesus' return, everyone agrees, is after the tribulation, right? If 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is describing one event that is the same event as Matthew 24, which you would expect to see if there's a lot of parallels between them, then that would have to mean that the rapture text in 1 Thessalonians 4 occurs after the tribulation, because it's the same return as Matthew 24. If that makes sense, listen to 13 parallels between the two texts. I'll just mention them very quickly. Number one, obviously Christ returns. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Matthew 24. From heaven, both texts say that. Accompanied by angels, both texts say that. With the trumpet of God, that's pretty specific. The trumpet of God is in both texts. It's the only time Jesus ever mentions a future tr trumpet. It's also the only time Paul ever mentions a future trumpet. Are we really thinking these are two separate trumpet calls separated by seven years? The simpler answer seems the better answer. It's one trumpet. It's the time of the resurrection and the judgment. Number five, believers are gathered to Christ, right? The elect or the resurrected saints are brought to Christ. Number six, it happens in the clouds in both texts. Number seven, the time is unknown. Jesus says even he does not know in his humanity when he was going to return. And Paul clearly says we don't know the day or the hour. Same, it's got to be the same event. Number eight, both texts explicitly say, this is in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Matthew 24, 43, that the day is going to be like a thief. It's got to be the same day. Uh, number nine, unbelievers are unaware of the impending judgment. Both texts say that. Number 10, judgment comes as pain upon an expectant mother. Labor pains are in both texts. It's got to be the same event. Number 11, believers are not deceived. That's in both texts. Number 12, believers are called to be watchful in both texts. And there's a warning against spiritual drunkenness in both texts. And what's amazing is Matthew 24 is lining up with both 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5, indicating that those two paragraphs are referring to one singular event. And I think that that is a, a very strong argument, especially with the trumpet call of God appearing in that text. Well, I think... It's, it seems obvious, based on what you just showed, that Paul is referencing what Jesus talked Absolutely. about. Um, and you don't, I mean, 13 very clear things. And so it's like the, Paul is not introducing a different teaching or a different event. He's commenting on the event Jesus talked about. So if you want, com, you know, inspired commentary on what Jesus meant in Matthew 24, go to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, because there is a strong unity uh, between what Jesus said and what the later New Testament says. In fact, I think a good case can be made that the rest of the New Testament is always built upon what Jesus Absolutely. said as well as the Old Testament stuff. But you, you can make, you can see, you don't have to make them, you can see them, all kinds of connections between what Paul, James, Peter, um, and John, they teach. You can go back to the Gospels and you can see that either clearly taught by Jesus that they're referencing in, in some way or in, in a seed form that they're developing further that was was there clearly, but they're just in explaining it and applying it in a way Jesus didn't have an opportunity to. So there is an incredible unity between what Jesus taught and what Paul's saying. And instead of seeing a divide there saying, well, Jesus meant one event, Paul meant another. Instead, let's see Paul taking what Jesus said and applying it to the church in, first, in, uh, in Thessalonica. Because otherwise you're, you're stuck with a predicament, which is, I agree with you totally. Paul is building off Jesus's teaching. Mm -hmm. Jesus' previous teaching. There's no question in my mind. That how could 13 details be accidentally the same? Clearly, Paul has heard what Jesus said, and he's building off of it. But, it, but what, again, is so remarkable is how could Paul be describing a different event from Jesus seven years apart? The, to me, the, the, the consistent 
to, to me, the very persuasive answer, I want to be nice in how I say this, to me, the very persuasive reason is because they're describing the one singular post-tribulational return of Christ. To me, that's just, it seems very clear to me. But, but again, not everyone sees it that clearly. Um, on, on these notes, number four reason I want to mention here, and I'll just, I've mentioned this two weeks ago, I'll say it really quickly. The word here in 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 17, to meet the Lord in the air, remembers the word apentasis, which is a nearly technical term that normally means a welcoming committee goes out of their home to meet a guest and then turns around and comes back with their guest into the home. And I've heard people mock the rapture and I've actually heard a preacher in the pulpit say, you know, I saw some video, but preacher in the pulpit say, hey, like what's the point of the rapture? Jesus comes down and we just kind of go up and then we come right back down. Like that seems like a waste of time. Why are we going up and coming right back down? Well, first of all, either Jesus is coming halfway and going back to heaven with us or we're going halfway up and coming back to earth. Someone's going halfway and going back, right? So we can't make fun of the halfway thing. Someone's going halfway between heaven and earth and returning to one place or the other. So that, that's got to be happening. We, we're not going to split up after that. So I think that, the, that this word apentasis, as it's used in the other two times in the New Testament, refers explicitly to the bridal party coming out to meet the groom, turning around and going back into the house. That's what the word meet normally means. And I think that's uh, the meaning here. We meet the Lord in the air and we come right back to the earth in judgment. Number, number five here, and th- this is important. So follow me on this. I'm going to use some Greek words. I don't know what else to do. So, so the, the, the three big words for Christ's return. Are you ready? Number one is parousia. It's used 15 times. It means his coming. Every time you see that, it's it's parousia. 15 times to to refer to his coming. The other word is epiphania. Think of epiphany. It means an appearing. Christ is going to appear. That's used five times of Christ's return. And the word apocalypsis, which is used also five times. It means to be revealed. It's where we get the word apocalypse for revelation. To be revealed. Christ will be revealed in heaven. Okay. That's what? 25 terms, right? I mean, it's 25 uses of three terms. Now, follow me here. All three of those words... And I'll just give you the references, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and 2 Thessalonians 1.7 covers all three of those terms. All three of those terms, His coming, His appearing, His being revealed. All, everyone agrees they're about Christ's return. All three of them are explicitly, in 2 Thessalonians 1.7 and 2 Thessalonians 2.8, are explicitly used to refer to Christ's return in a post-tribulational context. Let me just take you to the verses so you don't take my word for it. 2 Thessalonians 1.7, real quick here. It says that... Uh, God, verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. There's the word revealed, right? Apocalypsis. From heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. That's not the secret rapture. That's the final return of Christ, right? So clearly there, that word is used. Now look at chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance, that's the word epiphania, of his coming, his parousia. Okay, there you go. That's all three words. No question this text, is at, it's at the end of the tribulation. He's killing the Antichrist. This is the end of the tribulation. Okay. All three words are explicitly used to describe Jesus coming back after the tribulation. Those words are not once used explicitly to describe Jesus coming back before the tribulation. Hmm. That's a powerful argument. In other words, the, not, the words are explicitly used in those texts to describe Jesus coming back after the tribulation. They are not once used explicitly to describe, I think my mic's cutting out, uh, not once used explicitly to describe Christ's return before the tribulation. So w- w- give me the argument that says those words are referring to the 
pre-tribulation return of Christ. And it would be confusing to use the same words to describe two separate events, one before and one after tribulation. You would need clear evidence of that. Where are the verses that use Epiphania, Apocalypsis, and Parousia in saying that that will happen and then the tribulation will begin? There's no clear text that says that clearly, like these other texts state it the other way clearly. So, the, again, the simple and to me the straightforward in interpretation is to say these all refer to the same event. His uh, revealing, His appearing, His coming is one singular event and it takes place after uh, the tribulation. On that note, um, and I don't know if every f person convinced the preacher of rapture has taught this, but I ran this by my wife to be sure because she grew up in circles where that was, that was just, like you said, it's the only way you thought about these issues. Um, and one way that has been taught is, well, there's a difference between the coming of Christ and the appearing of Christ. And said the coming refers to the rapture, the appearing refers to his public second coming and power and glory. And one of the things, and again, that's, I don't know if that's how pervasive that was in a pre-trib mindset, but it was there. Uh, I've heard that said on my own, and I get, that's what my wife was taught growing up. Uh, so look at 1 Thessalonians 4 again, okay? This, this is important because this is the word, the word coming here. Uh, verse, um, where is it at? Verse 15. Uh, yeah, for this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So that's referring to um, Jesus coming. Is that the rapture, pre-trib, post, whatever? But this, this the word is the coming of the Lord. Look at 2 Thessalonians mm. chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together to him, typically referred, said, you know, that's the pre-trib rapture, just like 1 Thessalonians 4. Then you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, and the same word. His coming. The coming. And again, just to shore up what Mark was saying, why would you have com two completely different ideas about what that was without any reference to the difference between those two ideas? Um, you look at 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2, 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's the, I think we're going to get on this in a second. The day of the Lord is the day of what? The day Jesus comes and we are gathered to him. There's, there's no distinction there. If we just allow, I think, the text to, to flow as it is, there, there's no two comings here. There's one coming. The day of the Lord is the day he comes back for his people and we're gathered to him. And if that's the case, you get down to verse 8 when it talks about uh, he's going to slay this lawless one by the breath of his mouth, by the appearance of his coming, then there's only one coming. Mm -hmm. The same event that Jesus slays the Antichrist is when he comes for his people and gathers his people to him. And let me bolster that here. So th I think this is one of the strongest texts that goes right with what Greg's saying. But look at 2 Thessalonians 1. I think this is one of the most difficult texts to get around from the other perspective. I'm going to read it one more time because it's worth hearing this again. Because listen to the assumptions in this text. Verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you, it's talking about the church, right? That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you, that's the church, are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you, the church, who are afflicted as well as to us, when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Okay, if you feel lost right now, stick with me. According to the pre-trib rapture view, the, the typical left-behind view, this is what it would say. If, if the church is being persecuted, 
their time of relief comes not at Christ's judgment return, but seven years before. So their time of relief would come seven years before he comes with fiery angels in flaming fire to, to judge the enemies of God, okay? This text, I think, can't grammatically allow a seven-year gap because it says the time of the relief of the church is the time of the final judgment with flaming fire, which is a singular event with no seven-year gap in the middle. Where's the seven-year gap where the church has already been relieved with heavenly dwellings for seven years before the final judgment? It clearly is spoken of as one event. And I've actually, I heard a debate, two and a half hour debate I listened to on this a couple weeks ago. And uh, the, the guy kept, the, the guy that takes the view, I believe, kept bringing up this text and the other guy wouldn't, wouldn't respond to it. So finally in the, in the Q&A where he can force the guy to answer, he's like, you never answered 2 Thessalonians 1. He said, well, I'm happy to talk about it. And then he gives an answer I don't think uh, works. But let, let, let me read it one more time. Verse 6. God, in, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's his final judgment coming, right? And to grant relief to you, the church, who are afflicted, as well as to us, when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I, there's a Second Thessalonians commentary in our book room, and the author said he grew up pre-trib dispensational, pre-trib rapture. He said when he was preaching through or working through Second Thessalonians 1, that paragraph, that, those verses are what changed his whole position. So he's now written a commentary arguing against the pre-trib rapture, but he said this paragraph, you can't escape it. The time of the relief for the church and the time of the judgment for God's enemies happens when Jesus is revealed with his angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. It's not the secret rapture. It's the final return, which is, which is also when the secret rapture takes place. So I, I think that's a very uh, strong uh, argument. Let me give you one more here. Look at chapter two. Back to where, Gre Greg, you want to jump in there? No, you're good, man. Okay, Go so back to chapter two where Greg was just reading. Uh, look, look at this. Start, start at verse um, three. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now just stop there. Back when we were going through Acts, I was amazed when I, when I figured out about the, the planting of the church in Thessalonica, this church that he's writing to. Paul could not have been there more than maybe a few weeks or a couple of months. And he says, don't you remember I told you about the man of lawlessness while I was there? That blew my mind. A church that's got to be less than six months old. He had already taught baby Christians about the Antichrist. That, I, we haven't talked about it in six years. I mean, Paul did it in the first six months, maybe in the first six weeks. He says, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you about the man of lawlessness and the, the rebellion comes first, then the day of the Lord comes after that. Don't you understand the order of this? Like you, This is basic Christianity 101. I taught you this in the first month I was there. It just blew my mind because this is the subject I almost like to leave out entirely. But Paul says, I taught it to these baby Christians. Mm -hmm. and, and what's interesting here is, Paul, they're confused on whether the day of the Lord is coming or not, whether they're on the brink of it, whether it's already started. And Paul says, listen, it cannot have happened yet because two things have to happen first. First, a mass apostasy, a falling away, and the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, has to do his work before Christ will return. And, you know, if there's confusion about whether or not this day has come, Paul could have said a very simple thing to, to get rid of all their confusion. He could have said, he didn't have to go to the Antichrist. He could have said, hey, are y'all still here? You haven't been raptured, have you? Then we know the day hasn't come. But Paul never refers, the, the, the rapture would be the easiest way to disprove that the day of the Lord has already come. Just go, hey, have we been raptured? And they'll be like, no, we haven't. Do you know anybody who's been raptured? No. Well, then has the day of the Lord come? No. 
Okay, but Paul doesn't mention the rapture because it hasn't happened yet. He's talking, it's going to happen after the man of losses, after the rebellion. So Paul mentions what has to come before that day. Let me read it one more time. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way for that day, which includes the rapture and final return, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, etc. So the, the mass apostasy, I think it's a falling away amongst Christians, a massive coldness of heart, falling away, apostatizing, and the, and the man of lawlessness being revealed, the Antichrist doing his wicked thing, that has to happen before Christ's uh, final return. And Paul says, that's how we know this day has not approached yet. These preceding events uh, have not happened yet. I think also in light of that, I know we got to wrap up here, we need to, to keep... Um, Keep in mind what we've talked about multiple times, the importance of humility on this, because we can look at a lot of things in our day and time and say, it really seems like this might actually be happening in our day. And it could be, but we can't say for sure that it is. Mm-hmm. There have been right. numerous generations that have looked at the signs going on around them and said, oh, it's, it's going to be our, our generation. It's, it's going to be our generation. Um, and it may, and it may not be. Uh, but the constant refrain is, be on the alert be watchful, be living in such a way that you won't be ashamed when he comes, if it happens in your lifetime. So all, you know, the, the watchfulness is, is an ongoing thing for the church until Jesus comes back, because nobody knows when that's going to happen. Um, could these things be coming into place right now? It seems like there's a lot happening in our world to where the, the, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and what have you could be on his way in terms of, you think of totalitarian regimes, completely getting rid of religion, exalting their human leaders. Think of communist China. Think of North Korea. They've got, you know, museums and statues. They keep the bodies in state. This is what people come to give their devotion to is this human being while they reject and try to suppress any form of belief in God. So we, we see at least the precursors to it and how it could happen. And I just want to say there, I, I agree. It could, it could, th- these events could start unfolding very soon, but I, I want to say something unpopular. It could be another 5,000 years mm-hmm. before Jesus comes back. I don't think people are used to that. We, we, we want to think like, we, we should not, like the, the Thessalonians stopped working because they thought Jesus was about to come back. And Paul's like, no, that's not, you know, buy canned goods and wait for the rapture. Don't do that, okay? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, no like we should also be preparing for a, a, a world our great-grandchildren will live in, our great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren will live in. Because I'm telling you, if you would have been around during the, the Holocaust, you might have thought that the beast was the, 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 the Nazis and that, that Hitler was the Antichrist. And look at him. I mean, he's killing the Jews. This, this is a perfect picture. He, he was not the Antichrist. He was, First John says, many Antichrists have come, but there is a final Antichrist coming. There are many beast-like moments. Nero was a beast-like figure. Domitian was a beast-like figure. Uh, the, many, many different people. Jo- Joseph Stalin was a beast-like figure. There are many of those repeat throughout human history. But um, like you're saying, we don't necessarily know when the last one is going to show right. up on the scene. But let me take you in our last few moments to 1 Corinthians 15. This is another uh, rapture passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter is wonderful about the resurrection, but I want to zero in on our main, uh, on our main uh, point here for today. 1 uh, Corinthians 15, look at verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we will not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Uh, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Now, stop, stop there. I want to zero in on something here. <laughs> Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the what? The, the, remember I talked about eschatology in time? This is the word eschatos, trumpet, the last trumpet. Okay, that, that's the word here. Okay. I, I, my, my purpose here is not to mock, but, but I just have to quote this, okay? Because if you take the pre-trib rapture view, you can't say this is the last trumpet because there will be a trumpet after seven more years when Jesus finally returns, right? So, John MacArthur, I love John MacArthur. He's one of my favorite pastors. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians 15, on that verse, he said, the last trumpet is not the last heavenly trumpet. That's the actual statement in his commentary. Now, I understand what he means. He's trying to, he's trying to harmonize his theology with the fact that it doesn't quite fit with this phrase here. But I take the phrase at face value. I think this last trumpet is the same one Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 when he said, the trumpet will sound. I will gather the elect from the four winds of the world. I'm going to come back to judge the world. First Thessalonians 4, there's a trumpet. Jesus gathers his elect. And in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a trumpet called the last trumpet. I don't think it's the last. And then seven years later, there's another one. I think it's the last. It's the last. Why else would it be called the last trumpet unless we're trying to be confused here? And this trumpet here, it's definitely referring to the rapture. But if it's the last trumpet, it's got to be the same trumpet from Matthew 24, which is the post-tribulational return of Christ with the trumpet where he gathers his people. I think that phrase, last trumpet, and also he talks about the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I think that phrase is, um, is difficult uh, to, to, try to, to try to respond to from a, from a pre-trib perspective. It's a lot covered. How many points do you have left? I didn't even, I lost track. I'm no, sorry, guys. I think we got five or six. Five or yeah. six. Half. Good. Well, I, yeah, yeah. We, got, we got some. Do we get to next week a little bit, maybe? I don't know if we'll have enough yeah. for next week. We'll see. Well, we'll do it. Greg, would you please um, pray? And, and uh, the one thing we know for sure, he is coming back. Yeah, let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, we do have a hope, Lord, that regardless of our position on the tribulation, God, we all want Jesus to come back publicly, visibly, bodily, in power and glory. God, that is our blessed hope that we all share and we all long for. And God, all debates and all uh, disagreements will be settled on that day. Um, and Lord, whether we were right or wrong, we won't care at that point because we'll be with our Savior. And I pray, Lord, we would keep that in mind even as we Lord, strive to, to be as faithful to your word and as confident in our interpretation of it as we can be, Lord. And um, God, I just pray that, God, we would leave this time, God, I hope convinced uh, of a post-tribulational perspective, but regardless, Lord, that we would uh, be convinced that your word is true and, God, that we have a hope that will not fade. We have a hope that cannot die, a hope that cannot be quenched no matter the sufferings of this present time, what they bring. Lord, we know Jesus is coming back. We know there is an eternal kingdom coming. And God, we want that. And we're thankful that through faith in Jesus, we know we'll be a part of it. And so Lord, help us be a church that lives in the moment. But also, God, may we constantly keep in mind this great future event that our Savior is coming back in power and glory. And that's the day we long for. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.